still hasn't achieved anything in military terms beyond ethnic cleansing and genocide. Mm. It's very puzzling as to how they think that Hezbollah could be not even just defeated, weakened, to be, fa- to be frank. I think it's impossible. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. And I'm Asa Stanley. Welcome to the Electronic Intifada podcast. Now, since the Palestinian resistance in Gaza began what it calls Operation Al-Aqsa Flood on the 7th of October, Israel has been carrying out a devastating genocidal war against the civilian population. And this has killed at least 23,000 people and counting. But Israel and its US and European backers have also been threatening to expand this war into a regional war, one which could stretch from occupied Palestine to Lebanon, Syria, Yemen, and even possibly Iraq and Iran. And indeed, all these countries have been the target of US or Israeli bombing attacks since the 8th of October. But regional military powers have not been sitting on their hands. On the 8th of October, Hezbollah, the Lebanese resistance faction, joined the battle against Israel. And since then, they have been trading fire on the northern border of occupied Palestine with Israeli forces. We're very happy today to be joined by Amal Saad, a world-leading scholar of Hezbollah and the resistance axis. And she is a politics lecturer at Cardiff University in South Wales and was previously at Lebanese University in Beirut. She's the author um, of many things, but um, notably the book Hezbollah, Politics and Religion. Amal, thank you very much for joining us today. We know you're extremely busy, so we're grateful that you found the time for this discussion. Thanks so much for having me. Great. So um, we're going to talk later on in the podcast about the resistance access and about the Western lefts, or we could say misconceptions among the Western left of Iran and its relations with Hezbollah. But first of all, let's start at the beginning for viewers, any viewers and listeners who might not know who are Hezbollah and why have they joined the Palestinian resistance's war against the Israeli military since the 8th of October? Um, Well, Hezbollah are um, a military resistance movement on the one hand, and on the other hand, they're also a a political party in Lebanon. Now, they they started off as uh, a military movement in 1982 that was born as a result of Israel's invasion of Lebanon then. Um, And they very successfully resisted Israel over that time. And by 2000, Israel unilaterally withdrew from South Lebanon as a result of Hezbollah's military uh, activity. And in 1992, they participated in parliamentary elections, the first of its kind after the civil war, and they've been participating since. And in 2005, they also joined the cabinet, the government for the first time. So they've become also uh, very sort of active players in the political system. They're an entrenched part of the state. And they're the only uh, group in Lebanon which has been allowed to retain its arms after the end of the civil war in order to continue to fight Israel and to act as a deterrent to Israel. Could you give us a bit of an overview of what the arm wing of Hezbollah has been doing um, since the 8th of October against Israeli targets? Right. So, So Hezbollah, for the first time in its history, 
has opened up the Northern Front fully on behalf of the Palestinians. In the past, they, you know, whenever that front was open, it was for, you know, because of Lebanon. Um, so this was the first time in, in their history they took the initiative and launched cross-border strikes against Israel. Now, they started off by targeting um, surveillance equipment, you know, watchtowers, etc., and they'd sort of blinded Israel in, in that sense so that they, it did serve a strategic purpose. They also um, targeted military bases and barracks. And so progressively, you know, their targeting became more frequent and it sort of increased in quantity and quality. They even, you know, fired at the Iron Dome several times. Um, you know, they actually targeted the Iron Dome. Uh, so there have been different, they've taken down Israeli drones um, and they've they've hit Israeli settlements in response to Israel's targeting of Lebanese civilians. Uh, so the number of attacks or operations, I think, is around 700 now from October uh, 8. They've used quite sophisticated weaponry, I think. I mean, obviously, just a very small sample of their weapons arsenal, but they've used, um, you know, like the Burkan missile, which has a heavy warhead. They've used precision-guided, anti-tank-guided missiles. Um, so, so they have increased also qualitatively in terms of the types of weapons they've been using and, and the targets and so on. Hmm. Um, I've got a few bullet points here from one of Hassan Nasrallah's speeches um, of some of this stuff. Hassan Nasrallah is, of course, the, the leader of Hezbollah. Um, and uh, he said in his 5th of January speech that there's been an average of six to seven military operations every day. Um, 48 Israeli frontline posts have been hit. Um, 50 targets behind the front line. Um, 17 settlements have been hit. And he said the targets were tanks, armored vehicles, um, and also technological centers, monitoring centers worth hundreds of millions of of dollars and um there's been a kind of um i guess you could say a low low intensity war in the north i would say it's more than that I, I think it's a misnomer when people say low intensity war because low intensity warfare usually involves sort of very you know guerrilla groups first of all fighting against state actors and they also involve sort of more basic, much more basic weapons like IEDs. They don't involve like missiles and, and things like that. So the targets, you know, the, the sort of targeting and weapons that Hezbollah has used and the very fact that Hezbollah is not a regular guerrilla group. It's a, it's a hybrid force that I would say become even closer to a conventional armed force now than it was in 2006. And even then mm. it was a hybrid force. Um, so, in a, you know, looking at these different indicators, I think it's, more sort of apt to say it's a moderate intensity war. It's not a high intensity war yet. No, it's not like the war that you know Hamas and Islamic Jihad are fighting with Israel in Gaza. So it's a, it's a moderate intensity war. Yes. And could you give um, a, a, an indication of the kinds of uh, weaponry Hezbollah has because it's it's more well armed than the Palestinian resistance, right? Oh, yes. I mean, it's obviously much more sophisticated in terms of weapons, in terms of training, in terms of size, on all these different sorts of levels. 
Hezbollah is a much more powerful military force than Hamas is. In fact, it's been called by many military experts as the most powerful non-state actor in the world. Uh, and there is a reason for that. Uh, well, part of it is, as you say, that the weapons. So Hezbollah possesses weapons. Obviously, no one really has facts at their disposal. It's quite hard. But just looking at different sort of reports, right. intelligence reports and others, um, Hezbollah does seem to have a vast arsenal of, you know, Oh, it's, it's reported 150,000 rockets and missiles. Uh, and of those, a large number are precision-guided. You know, it's got ballistic missiles. It, it has, um, you know, anti-tank-guided missiles that are sophisticated. It also has a vast array of drones. And, you know, drones have become sort of the weapon of the future, and we're seeing that now. So they have very sophisticated drones, long-range drones, medium-range, short-range, uh, you know, kamikaze drones, other types. So that they've, they've had these for a while now, and they've been using them effectively. They do have reportedly some air defense systems. I, I don't think they're very sophisticated, but they, they do seem to have, you know, some type of air defense. Um, some say the SA-8, others say the SA-22. And, you know, this is what I've read so far. This is something very difficult to ascertain. Because obviously Hezbollah mm. doesn't disclose uh, any information about their weapons. Right. Uh, they have anti-ship missiles. They use them in the July war, but they have more sophisticated ones now. Um, and so that's just looking at weapons. But what's more important, I think, is the sort of military experience Hezbollah has acquired over the years. And I'm not just talking about South Lebanon and how Hezbollah fared in 2006. It basically, you know, it, if we want to be conservative, we can say, it, it prevented Israel or denied Israel a victory. And if you want to be more optimistic, you can say defeated Israel, but it, it, at the very, very minimum, it denied Israel a victory. And in fact, Israel itself in the Winograd Commission, the report that was issued there called it a failure on Israel's part. Mm. Um, so, so we know that also Hezbollah has a lot of experience since then, in, including in Syria. It's fought in many different terrains. It's fought conventional armies. It's fought non-state actors. Um, and, you know, like jihadi groups that it fought there, it, it's fought in different terrains and different weather conditions. OK, so that's that's great. That's what, that, I mean, that's 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 a good um, overview of what's been happening. Um, so add a little bit of um, context then. So the you know, the 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 July 2006 war um you know, was a I I I was actually living in the West Bank while that was happening, and um, it was um, it was a real eye opener for me as someone coming from the West to see the level of support really among all sectors. I mean, I I was living in um, I was living in Ramallah in what was what's called the old city of Ramallah. It's not really that old, but it, um, it um, Basically, there was a lot of Christians living. There's a lot of Christians, and because um, Ramallah was originally a small Christian village, which kind of blossomed out, boomed out during the um, Palestinian Authority years. But this is to say that uh, you know it, it, there was you know a lot of Christians living in that area, and yet everyone was still supporting Hezbollah during that that period. And I remember I've probably got a photo of it somewhere. There was a, a a Christian bakery which always had a um, uh, an icon of Mary outside it, and then on and, and then they during the Hezbollah war they put up a poster of Hassan Nasrallah, 
during the 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 war the israeli war against lebanon in 2006 um and that was just that was to me that was such a sort of um that's something i always remember because it was like that was emblematic to me of how really everyone was supporting hezbollah whereas to me as someone coming from the west hezbollah was always misportrayed as this terrorist group um in western media but you um could you talk a little bit about um well obviously you know people can read your book to get into the full history we're not gonna have time to get into the full history but could you talk a little bit about the the reason for the emergence of hezbollah um in terms of the israeli occupation of south lebanon in the 80s i mean hezbollah has I, I, I'm not going to exaggerate and say it, it enjoys, you know, full popular legitimacy. It doesn't. Uh, no group does in Lebanon. <laughs> not even the Lebanese state enjoys that legitimacy, unfortunately. Um, but and, and Nasrallah has repeatedly said that Hezbollah, its armed status, does not enjoy a national consensus. And Lebanon is a deeply polarized society. Different sects and parties have different foreign allegiances. Um you know that are that are complete in complete contradiction with one another. You know you've got U.S. back groups, Saudi back groups, uh, you know groups that are supported by Iran. So and some in the past by Syria. Um, Syria is much less powerful now, of course. So that there are these sort of competing foreign allegiances. So it's very hard for Hezbollah to enjoy full popular legitimacy uh, in terms of its armed presence. But what happened, particularly after two thousand and five, after the Hariri assassination, when Lebanon became divided between you know March 14 forces and, and March 8 forces was that uh, it was able to not only rally all the Shia of Lebanon behind it who make up about a third of the population um, virtually all according to opinion polls according to election results you know that I think around 95 percent of Lebanese Shia support Hezbollah um, and they've also been able to rally some Sunnis behind them and, and this was a bit difficult in 2005 right before the July war, because there were so many sort of sectarian tensions in the aftermath of the Hariri assassination and in the aftermath of the US invasion of Iraq. Um, so over the years, it, it, it managed to, I think, um, you know, rally other groups behind it, and especially the Christians. So the Christians, under the leadership of the former president, uh, Michel Aoun, uh, who had heads or headed the free patriotic movement, at the time, they were much bigger than they are now. And so you know, we could say Hezbollah enjoyed maybe, you know, a, a very, I, I don't want to say half, but a very large segment of the Christian population as well. And you would see like in a lot of the Hezbollah rallies, you would find many Christians uh, who attended those rallies. So it did have some cross-sectarian support. Um, now that support, obviously, during the July war, it peaked because at wartime, usually when any group resists Israel, uh, is you know this is this case for Hamas today? You can look at the figures like before the invasion and and during the invasion they skyrocket. So most Lebanese, even sort of more right wing Christian groups, a lot of them also as well rallied behind Hezbollah. A majority of Sunnis rallied behind Hezbollah. This was two thousand and six, when sectarian tensions were at their peak. Um, now since then there's been, you know, thank thankfully a desectarianization in Lebanon. We've got much less sort of sectarian tensions than we did in the past. Um, I'm talking like the last two, three years, this has been the case. And today, in fact, you know, looking at sort of public opinion in Lebanon, it's clear that the overwhelming majority of Sunnis support Hamas and Islamic Jihad. 
uh, you know, they support the Palestinian cause, obviously the overwhelming majority, you know, over 95% of Shia do as well, the Druze do as well, you know, the Muslim sect, they support the Palestinian cause. So I think it would be logical to expect these other sects to transfer that sort of support to Hezbollah if um, Israel attacked Lebanon. Uh, and obviously many Christians support as well. I left I left out the Christian community. So, um, you know, it's it's still hard to gauge exactly, you know, in terms of percentages and figures. But I think the overwhelming majority of Lebanese, you know, would would support Hezbollah in any war with Israel. So it wouldn't. I don't think one can count on, sort of, like many sort of Western observers believe that, or Israelis say that Hezbollah is constrained by internal considerations that it would wouldn't win public support. Well, even if it doesn't have that now, which is also questionable, but I think they do have a majority support currently for their activities along the border. Um, they would definitely have over 75% support. And I say that figure because that was the figure around that figure in 2006. So it's a much less hostile environment for Hezbollah. Uh, the government itself is not an anti-Hezbollah government, as was the 2006 government, um, which was led by the Prime Minister Fuad Sanura, who, according to WikiLeaks, was actually conspiring with Israel against Hezbollah, as were many March 14 politicians calling on the US to push Israel to destroy Hezbollah, destroy South Lebanon. So we do not have such a government in place today. Let's bring it up a bit more up to date then, and let's talk about the, the killing of Salah Haruri. Salah Haruri was uh, Hamas's deputy political leader, um, and he said in a phone interview with Al Jazeera on the 12th of October that the 7th of October assault was what he called a preemptive strike against an upcoming Israeli attack and that it caused chaos amongst Israeli occupation forces. But uh, Arui was also involved in Hamas's indirect negotiations with Israel over the prisoner swaps that Hamas is proposing between uh, the Palestinian resistance and uh, Israel. Now, Aruri and several others were killed in what was an apparent Israeli drone strike targeting a southern Beirut uh, suburb on the 2nd of January, so last week as we're filming this. Uh, Israel's former UN ambassador, Danny Danon, posted on X, formerly Twitter, saying that the bombing was carried out by the Israeli military, the Shin Bet, the Mossad and the security sources. He, um, this In this tweet, he, he thanked them for that. Um, now, there was no official confirmation of this claim. Um, the Israeli spokesperson, Mark Regev, even claimed that it wasn't an attack on, the, on Lebanon as a state and that he said something along the lines of whoever did it, they had... Um, with Hamas. Now, uh, do, do, you, do you think this sort of coyness to claim responsibility for this attack was directly by, by the official way, Israeli representatives? Do you think that was a sign that Israel is worried about a serious response from Hezbollah? Is the I'm not deterrence sure. equation yeah, It was too easy, to be honest. Like, they didn't really make much of an effort to hide. Um, you know, there's, there's very yeah. little plausible deniability in that. Yeah. And Mark Regev made a mistake on TV where he, he said Israel, um, if you recall. So I, I don't think they made much effort, effort to conceal that. Uh, but mm. nonetheless, yes, they, they well, their policy has historically not been to not claim responsibility immediately. And we only find out years later in memoirs and so on, um, you know, of their role in these targeted assassinations. 
but I do think Israel was concerned about Hezbollah's response. I mean, that's if we want to be kind of sanguine about this and say Israel didn't try and provoke Hezbollah into a wider war. Um, so, so if we look at it in terms of it really was just to target Aruri. And I think it was mainly because if they did want to provoke Hezbollah into a war, they would have picked a different target because it wasn't a Hezbollah target. It was a Hamas target. And yes, of course, it violated the rules of engagement. Has, you know, Nasrallah's red line, which he had you know, warned back in uh, August, that if Israel does try and assassinate any leader from any group in Lebanon, um, you know, on Lebanese soil, that Hezbollah would not tolerate it. So, you know, th th there clearly was an expectation of a retaliation. Um, but, you know, again here, I'm, I'm not really sure. I don't think anyone knows whether Israel did want to kind of drag Hezbollah into a war with this or whether it was banking on Hezbollah sort of remaining cautious. And I, and I, I tend to believe the latter in this specific case, uh, that Israel kind of knew that Hezbollah doesn't want war and wouldn't escalate to the point that it would bring sort of the conflict to the brink of war. Yeah. Um, you posted on X, formerly Twitter, after the assassination, uh, this writing that Hezbollah will likely, quote, will likely retaliate in a manner that is at once an escalation that matches the scope of the Israeli assassination and restores the balance of deterrence, but also one which remains at a sub-threshold level, i.e. short of all-out war. Uh, end of quote. Um, it seems that you were proven right on Saturday as the 6th, as, as we're filming this, when Hezbollah launched dozens of rockets at the Mehran um, airbase um, in northern occupied Palestine. Um, and we've got uh, this video that we're showing is um, an official video of um, the armed wing of Hezbollah that they put out showing this uh, 3D map of the airbase, along with actual footage of the attack. Um, and they caused significant damage. Uh, and then soon after that, there was a, um, an explosive drone strike on another Israeli military base in Safad, which is deep into northern occupied Palestine. Um, further than they, I believe these two targets were both further than they previously hit. Yeah, they were different The first, I think, was eight kilometers, and the second was twelve or thirteen kilometers deep. Mm. Yes. So, do did these targets? So, the question for you then is that did these targets represent a significant escalation along the lines that you predicted in that tweet? Oh, I believe so, because Israel responded by assassinating Hezbollah officials right after that, whom they connected to both these strikes. Uh, so, Israel responded to the Meron strike by assassinating uh, a senior commander, reportedly uh, number two in the uh, Radwan, Hezbollah's Radwan unit, its elite force. Um, and then Hezbollah retaliated for both his assassination and for Al-Haruri. So it was a double kind of you know, response for both um, with the attack on um, Safad base. And then Israel the same day responded by assassinating someone they claimed and i don't think that's accurate because hezbollah did not you know actually denied that he was the head of the drone unit but israel claimed he was the head of the drone unit um which was responsible for you know striking suffered and when it when it retaliated by assassinating um Wissam al tawil 
Israel, and he, you know, it, it claimed that he was responsible for the Meron attack. So that does show us that Israel did understand this to be a retaliation, as it should, because it was qualitatively different in terms of not just, you know, depth, you know, of incursion, but in terms of the very strategic, you know, type of target that Hezbollah was able to to strike, and it had not done that before. I mean, they had sort of hit military bases and barracks, but obviously nothing. Uh, of the scope. Now, that doesn't tell us exactly how much damage they did, especially in the second instance, we don't really know. And Israel is very tight-lipped about casualties, about mm. the extent of damage and, and so on. So it will be it's, it's going to be quite difficult to tell how effective those strikes were. But what we can look at is, you know, have they deterred Israel? We don't know yet. You know, will it continue with its um, strategy of assassinations? It very well might, might do. It obviously hasn't stopped because it's been, you know, but th these two military figures that it did target, I think it is important to distinguish them from the Al Aruri strike, which was much more provocative because it happened in Beirut um, mm. because it was outside the combat zone. So that was really an abandonment of the rules of engagement. These other two, uh, I'm not saying that, you know, that they weren't like important targets or that it wasn't provocative, but nonetheless, they happened sort of on the southern front, close to the border area. They were combatants. So it doesn't, it's not the same. You know, I don't think we can say they're anywhere near as provocative or, you know, a, a sharp hit to deterrence as the Haruri strike was. So um, let's go back a little bit to the beginning. Um, when Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah made his debut speech um, in November, since the beginning of Israel's uh, genocide in Gaza, you wrote that uh, in the following days, you wrote that many people seem to have viewed Nasrallah's speech as a sign of de-escalation. Uh, I disagree. Uh, and then you said that um, the speech was addressed to the US first and Israel second, and that Hezbollah is in fact ready to go to war with both. Um, when, I mean, Hezbollah has made, uh, excuse me, Hezbollah's leader, Hassan Nasrallah, has made a series of speeches since then and where he talked uh, a great deal about um, Israel's attacks in the Gaza Strip, uh, where he talked about the Palestinian resistance. There was a lot of, uh, he gave a lot of ownership to um, Hamas's military operation on October 7th to the Palestinian resistance. There was a clear kind of, uh, distance that um, some may have interpreted as kind of a, a distance. I'd like you to address that. I want you to talk about the most significant points he made, what's your, what your reading is of that interpretation, and um, maybe perhaps even address that, you know, in the, in, the, in the aftermath of that speech, there were some people who viewed it as kind of a, a de-escalation, as a as a as, as falling short of like an announcement of an all-out war against Israel in defense of Palestinians, um, others have maybe correctly interpreted it as you know a sign of the level-headedness of and the cool-headedness of that we've always seen from the Lebanese resistance. Um, so, can you explain why he didn't? announce an all-out war, perhaps um, in reference to Hezbollah's doctrine of what some have referred to as the escalation ladder. Yeah, well, I'm going to sort of conflate here a bit the first and second speeches that he made because they, you know, one built on the other. And so I'm, I'm just going to treat them both as sort of the same uh, speech. Um, 
you know, in that speech, I think I, I recall a lot of people, a lot of supporters of the Palestinian cause were very disappointed because they wanted Nasrallah to declare all out war on Israel. Um, and as someone who's been observing Hezbollah for decades now, I thought the very fact that Hezbollah was engaged in moderate intensity war was huge <laughs> in itself. Uh, and I did not expect Hezbollah to launch all that war. And if they were going to, they were not going to declare it. Because generally speaking, it's not just Hezbollah that doesn't do that. No army in the world does that. No army in the world that actually has a real plan um, to initiate a war, you know, in that sense, is going to declare its aims and, and you know, take away the element of surprise. So I would have been shocked if, if Nasrallah did that. And especially someone like him, who's not given to bombast or, or bluster or anything like that. And that's why Israel takes him very seriously, in fact. And his, you know, his speeches are so eagerly awaited all over the world, and particularly in Israel, uh, because they tend to believe what he says, unlike many other Arab leaders. Um, so I think that speech was not a de-escalation, you know, as, as you noted, um, as I wrote on Twitter. It, it was just a very kind of um, carefully worded, I would say, um, threat or warning that Hezbollah could escalate if Israel continues to, uh, and he said there were two developments it would it would observe. One would be how it sort of responds to Lebanon, how it deals with the Lebanese front, and that's in terms of Lebanon's national security. Uh, and the other was with regard to, Pal to Palestine, with regard to the Palestinian people in terms of genocide and ethnic cleansing. I mean, he didn't go into detail, but that's what I understood. And in terms of um, sort of the the, um, the the fate of Hamas, like if you know if, if Hamas was going to be significantly weakened, and by that I presume we mean you know like decapitating its leadership, weakening it militarily, etc. Uh, and those are the conditions under which Hezbollah would then sort of be forced to go uh, and launch an all-out war. Um, so you know it's not as if he didn't say there is a scenario under which we wouldn't go to war. He was saying. Right now, we're going to be doing this sort of level of warfare. It's it's this this, and he, I think he did describe it as kind of a moderate intensity because he recounted the different attacks they've been staging so far and and what they've been hit and how they've been able to divert so much of the air force, uh, naval forces, and ground forces away from Gaza by opening up the northern front. So he explained in terms of military strategy how important that was, um, and that although it's Maybe, you know, Israel has basically destroyed all of Gaza. Uh, but I think, that, you know, the insinuation there was that they, they may have been more successful had Hezbollah not diverted them. Uh, so in terms of in terms of uh, targeting Hamas, I mean. Also in the first speech, I think it was really important that he highlighted the role of the U.S. And that's why, you know, that one, one understood from this that Hezbollah is aware that if there is an all-out war, if there is a full-blown conflict, that the U.S. would be an active co-belligerent in it, and that Hezbollah was fully ready to take on not just Israel, but the U.S. as well, and that the U.S. was, in fact, kind of the main architect of this war in the sense that although the Israeli, you know, government wanted a war, um, but that they wouldn't be able to get one without U.S. support. And so it was, you know, the, the fact that Nasrallah was threatening the U.S., he was actually threatening the U.S. and saying, you know, we we are more than ready for this, and as are our allies across the region. Um, so, you know, the, I think those were the main points of that speech. And since then, he's you know he's had other speeches, and it's all sort of built on this, and it's been a continuation. He's also going to speak on Sunday, so that's something we also have to look out for. Yeah. 
Mm. Um, you you wrote an article for the Electronic Intifada uh, 15 years ago, uh, uh, 15 years ago to the day, actually, that we're filming this. Um, and uh, I want to look back on that a little bit um, and see if you were right or wrong. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, a few quotes from it. While Israel fervently attempts to terrorize the Palestinians into submission in Gaza, many observers have started to wonder why Hezbollah has refrained from stepping in militarily to assist its brothers in arms, Hamas. Such musings fail to take account of the constraints of, on Hezbollah's room for action, as well as the circumstances under which Hezbollah would ignore such constraints. The question that should be posed is not so much if Hezbollah will act, but when. Now you were writing this during uh, you were writing this Amal during um, the two thousand eight slash two thousand nine Israeli war against the Gaza Strip, but I mean that quote in particular you could have been writing today, really. I think, unfortunately, <laughs> fortunately and unfortunately. Yes, it's it's sad when one is right about something like this, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's um, it's. It's kind of a, a sign of how how little has changed in some ways, but um, of course things have changed in in some other ways. Um, just to read a, um, another quote from this article, um, quote: "More than simply receiving military training, Hamas's military strategy appears to com conform to the new school of fighting founded by Hezbollah's assassinated military leader Imad." Mugnea himself rumoured to have personally trained and equipped several Palestinian groups over the years, which combines conventional and non-conventional guerrilla warfare that functions not only to liberate occupied territory, but to defend itself from aggression, end of quote. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, Amal, you've seen the, um, I'm sure you've seen the videos that have been coming out from the Palestinian resistance in Gaza. Um, do you think um, the the Palestinian resistance, the, the way that it's fighting in Gaza to defend itself against the Israeli invading Israeli soldiers, do you think these the guerrilla tactics that they've been using um, bear the signs of um, this kind of training? Oh, definitely. Um, and this was evident, you know, way back. I you know I think anyone who's been observing uh, Hamas. Hamas's military skills over the years will see that uh, a lot of their, um, you know, sort of military tactics, uh, weapons, and so on were very similar to Hezbollah's in the 2000s. And so, for example, the bunker network, you know, it's a very, I think, over 400 kilometers that Hamas has. I mean, Hezbollah did not fight a bunker war, mind you, in 2006, like Hamas did. It, it used bunkers, but not in the same way that Hamas has been forced to use them. It's a very different terrain. And, you know, like in mm. Lebanon, Hezbollah had what they called nature reserves, what Israel called nature reserves. Um, you know, Hezbollah was able to conceal weapons and so on in mountainous areas and so on. So they didn't really need to rely as, as extensively on bunkers as Hamas does. But nonetheless, um, the bunker, the very, you know, the, the way these bunkers are built, you know, from what I know, that Hezbollah played a very important role in this. And specifically, uh, Ahmad Mughni had a, had a hand in this. And we saw the first signs of these bunkers in the 2008-2009 war. And, and we know that Hamas has been trained, as has Islamic Jihad, by Hezbollah directly. 
um, and in terms of also weapons manufacturing and so on. I mean, Hamas has, has to rely a lot more on manufacturing their own weapons than Hezbollah does because of supply route difficulties that Hamas mm. faces that, that Hezbollah doesn't face. Um, so that they definitely played a very active role in strengthening Hamas's military capabilities, as ha has, of course, Iran and Syria in the past. Yes. Yeah. So just to clarify for our, our viewers and, and listeners of the supply route difficulties that you mentioned, um, uh, Hezbollah, Lebanon, of course, borders Syria, which in turn borders Iran. Uh, and Iran is a uh, supporter of the Lebanese resistance. And so weapons can be transferred that way because uh, Syria is also, of course, a member of this axis of resistance, which we're going to talk a, a little bit more about in a bit. Um, but um, that is that's a form of support that um, the Palestinian resistance doesn't have in the same way, doesn't have this, um, of course, doesn't have a border with um Syria, Lebanon, or, or Iran in that way, and it is isolated. It only has um, a border with Egypt, but we're not going to get into Sorry, that. Too. Hezbollah tried in the past to smuggle weapons into Gaza from Egypt, but mm. Egypt arrested its operative who was doing the smuggling. So it's, it's really difficult because the Rafah crossing was the only way, place or um, you know border through which uh, Palestinian groups could receive weapons. Uh, so it's just to give you an idea about how difficult it is. It's much more difficult than it has been for Hezbollah, which relies on Syria for the as, as a supply route. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, it, 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 uh, the Palestinian resistance in Gaza obviously faces these um, sort of uh, geographical limitations, uh, 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 structural limitations in the same way that the Lebanese resistance um, mm -hmm. Uh, doesn't and it has to it seems that um again we don't have any inside information here but going from what we can see um in terms of videos and publicly available information it seems that hamas and islamic jihad and the others palestinian resistance factions rely on um domestically manufactured weapons you know which is which is why it's so absurd that israel would even think of taking on hezbollah because if it hasn't been able to score a single military victory of any significance against Hamas, which has been, you know, making its own drones, you know, using commercial drones um, and homemade weapons, and it still hasn't achieved anything in military terms beyond ethnic cleansing and genocide. Mm. It's very puzzling as to how they think that even the US, frankly, not just Israel, alone, even if the US participated in the war, I don't see how they would, you know, assume that Hezbollah could be not even just defeated, weakened, to be to be frank. I think it's mm. impossible. Yeah, fascinating. Um, okay, um, there's a couple more quotes here from, from your article. Um, the reason then for Hezbollah's constructive ambiguity, whereby it neither confirms nor denies its intent to join the conflict is clear. Although the resistance has so far remained on the sidelines of the conflict, it's highly improbable that it would continue to do so if Hamas Hamas were on the verge of collapse. Um, yeah, again, interesting parallels because you, you know you're making the same analysis today of that it's an unlikely that Hezbollah would continue to keep the same level of of its involvement and that it wouldn't escalate its involvement if 
Hamas's um, uh, military wing were, uh, were on the verge of collapse. And uh, as you just stated, it's not like there's been no significant, um, there's been no real military achievements by uh, the Israeli military against Hamas. You know, it, 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 we've seen, you know, they've just, they said not long ago that they have dismantled, they, they made this ridiculous claim that they've dismantled Hamas and is its military infrastructure in the north of Gaza. Uh, and then, you know, immediately after Hamas puts out more videos showing that that's just completely untrue. Um, I'm also so, curious about this this idea of constructive ambiguity. I mean, if you could talk about that, because that seems to be the that the, the mystery of the the, the ambiguity um, of uh, the Lebanese resistance's uh, supposed um, not intentions, but the extent that they're willing to go creates a lot of anxiety in Israel. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm very curious about this interpretation, um, which you can see both in their discourse and in their actions. And um, if you could talk about that. Did, did I use the word constructive ambiguity? Did I actually did, yes. <laughs> used it in his speech. I think, I think it was the first or the second speech. And I'm wondering, did he? Did I put it in quotations? I don't think you did. No. Uh, so it was. Oh, it wasn't an Australian. No, you're just a. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I wasn't quoted because I'm trying to. Did he? Did he use this term? No, it's your. There's no quotes. It's your. Okay. It's your so term. He's, he's only used it recently for the first time in regard to the strategy. Oh wow. Yeah, I, mean, I just realized that. I thought I was quoting him when you when you read it. Okay. Well, you may have been quoted him, but if if so, then. Yeah, well, there's no indication you were yeah, not indicated and um yeah. i think it's interesting because as you say it does function as a form of psychological warfare and what's interesting about hezbollah's psychological warfare is, so you know in propaganda you've got you know white propaganda and gray and black and you know they they all have different elements of lies or, or untruths and so with white propaganda it's just objective facts and i think israel does see does view Nasrallah's psychological warfare as sort of constituting white propaganda because he doesn't lie, actually. He just withholds a lot of truth. He withholds a lot of information, but he doesn't actually state um, lies. So he prefers to say very little. And that's been very effective. And I found it most effective myself because um, in the you know his speech, the, the one in which he um, was supposed to threaten, the one before last, right after Al-Aruri, the assassination, he just left it till the very end. It was quite tantalizing because we were all waiting for him to say something. And he did it until the very end of the speech. And he just said like one sentence, like this is not going to go unpunished. And he just smiled. And I believe that even the smile was, you know, by design. It was designed to cause that kind of anxiety um, and, um, you know, uncertainty in in Israel. So there was this fear, you know, after his speech, the Israelis were saying that, you know, they were preparing the Northern Front for all contingencies and even Tel Aviv and so on. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think he's, he's quite adept at this form of warfare and this constructive ambiguity. You know, Hezbollah, as I said, most armies in the world, most leaders will not disclose their military plans in advance. I don't think this is mm -hmm. unique to Hezbollah, but I think what is unique is the way Hezbollah conducts its psychological warfare does seem to be effective because Israel always sort of responds to that quite immediately. 
and we can see the effects of that. Uh, and the fact that Hezbollah doesn't actually lie when it does make these threats. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's something to look out for in, in all of his speeches. It's what makes yeah. them effective. The lack of of you know lying. Yeah. Uh, before tomorrow is going to take us on to uh, move us on to the access of resistance. But before we do that, just um, I I just want to point out that um, Hezbollah, like what Hezbollah has done since the eighth of October, is really. I mean, it it's really significant. You know. People, you know, as Tamara mentioned earlier, some people may be posting online that, and as you mentioned as well, um, maybe a bit disappointed. Some some sort of pro-resistance people maybe want to see Hezbollah doing more and people saying things like that. But if we look objectively at what has been achieved, I mean, just you you mentioned the sort of. Um, propaganda war in a way being carried out by Nasrallah. Um, there has been these just regular attacks on the north of occupied Palestine. Um, there's been um, certainly tens of thousands and possibly as many as 200 and or so thousand Israeli settlers who have been displaced from the north of occupied Palestine. And, you know, this, this, I mean, that, I think Hezbollah. I think Nasrallah in one of his speeches, actually in one of his recent speeches, mentioned some of, some of this, and he said that he said something along the lines of um, that. Yeah, actually, I've got the quote here. He said previously, any one of our operations that we've done recently would have resulted in Israel bombing Beirut and destroying yeah. neighborhoods. Yeah, yeah, that's and, true. I mean, it's it. He also mentioned in that speech something that a lot of people hadn't sort of taken note of, which was, this was unprecedented. Hezbollah has never taken sort of the military initiative. Yes, in 2006, it did abduct Israeli soldiers, but that wasn't the same sort of opening up a front. Um, and Hezbollah was involved in a sort of low intensity warfare, um, you know, over the years with Israel. But this is very different because the, the front had been, you know, relative, very quiet, I would say, with the exception of Israeli, you know, sort of violations here and there. Um, and they have happened over the years, but it was relatively calm, and Hezbollah just opened this front. And that was something that was actually, you know, th this was offensive warfare, effectively. This was an offensive tactic. Uh, the strategy's defense is offensive defense, but it, it is actually initiating a war, much like Hamas's October 7 attack was offensive as well in that sense, that they mm. initiated an attack. Um, so I, I think that is something one has to factor in that is qualitatively different from Hezbollah, like the 2009 invasion we talked about when Hezbollah did no such thing. So that there is a, a huge shift, I think, in terms of strategy. And I do think, although you, you pointed out, Tamara, earlier, that Nasrallah sort of emphasized Palestinian ownership of this attack, and I think that's an important point. And that is something that Hezbollah has always been very careful in terms of because Palestine is not just an Arab and an Islamic cause, but also a national cause for Palestinians, and that they are at the spearhead of their cause, and that no one can come and sort of decenter them and take center stage. Uh, so Hezbollah has always been very weary of that and has always left it to the Palestinian groups um, to lead their own their own struggle. And if and if they need support, that would that would come. And and of course it did. Um, but I do think that all these groups in the resistance actors, all these actors do strategize in terms of long-term military strategy. 
And I don't think it's a coincidence that both Hamas and Hezbollah initiated attacks on Israel. I do think it is part of a wider kind of what Iran calls forward defense strategy. Mm. Uh, and we might be seeing more of that over the years, especially given that Hezbollah and others in the resistance axis have been talking about a great war for some time, which they consider inevitable. And so what we're basically looking at today isn't a case of if it's when, again, like I wrote in 2009, it's like, when will this great war happen? That will be a high intensity warfare. It will be the same actors we're seeing now, even more. I, I presume Iran would join the fray then as well. Mm -hmm. uh, it would be high intensity warfare though. So it would be full up, you know, full out regional war. Um, and it would be fought very differently. And obviously the expectation is on the other side, the US would be uh, a co-belligerent in such a war. So the, the only thing that no one is certain of is, will this happen today or will it happen in five or 10 years? You know, only time will tell. Uh, so I do think this is going to be, that war is going to be, you know, it is inevitable, I think. I don't, I don't see how that can ever be avoided so long as Israel continues to exist in its current state. So long as, um, you know, we're seeing whether it's a right-wing government or a left-wing government, it's always aggressing against um, its neighbors. And it's continuously, you know, involved in ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. And I think that's something that is existential uh, to Hezbollah. I don't think it's just existential for Hamas and Islamic Jihad. It's existential because the expectation is that if Israel succeeds in this, mm. it's gonna affect the whole future of Palestine, the whole future of the region. And that if the Palestinian cause, you know, falls, if it collapses, then Lebanon is definitely next. So I, I do see yeah. this as something that is unavoidable. At least this is how Hezbollah views it. Yeah, but, I don't. I, I think people in the West don't too often don't understand this. That um, it is not just a Palestinian issue in that in that respect in that regard. Because you know it's highly likely that if Hezbollah didn't exist, it never existed. There would there would probably be Israeli settlers in South Lebanon now. You know, that's really uh, true. Yeah, that, that's something Hezbollah has actually spoken about uh, in the past. That, you know, because Israel, when it invaded Lebanon in 1982, it reached Beirut. Um, and, you know, it took a few years. It was until 80, 1985. It took three years for them to withdraw their forces to the security zone, which was, you know, a belt uh, or security belt. And they they basically uh, occupied that area along with the South Lebanon army, you know, a group of a militia of collaborators. And, you know, they held on to that until to, until the year 2000. But the fear was that if, if, they, if Hezbollah didn't try and repel them, that they would keep expanding and forming settlements. And Israel's plan was to annex. It still remains. They still talk about Eretz Israel is to expand. So this is what I mean by if Israel continues, you know, to behave as an expansionist state then I, I do think war, the Great War is inevitable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, this may be like a half-baked question, but it's it's been on my mind. Um, I mean, what we've seen in the Gaza Strip over the past, now we've entered the fourth month, um, has been just a complete mask-off moment for Israel. I mean, at first when they were beginning their calculated and systemic attack on hospitals in Gaza. Uh, they were making a lot of excuses for it. They were talking about tunnels under the hospitals. They were talking about Hamas operating. Now they attack hospitals and don't even um, try to justify it. So this 
Israeli, like, it's not even a mode of fighting. This just complete genocide that they're that they've launched in Gaza. Do you think that's had any effect on the equation of deterrence for Hezbollah? Do you think that they uh, interpret Israel's mode of warfare differently because Israel is fighting Hezbollah very differently in the north than it is attacking Hamas and Gaza? Is this a is this a um, misguided reading. What do you what do you make of that? That's a good question because it's it's like you know under this current regime, it's like the gloves are off, and it's not just for Israel, but also the gloves are off of the U.S. of you know Western powers, and sort of genocide has become normalized, and so has ethnic cleansing, and now they have sort of euphemisms for these things, uh, you know, like collateral damage and um, you know voluntary. Uh, you know, uh, transfer and all, and all the rest of it. So it's seen as extremely sinister and worrying, I would say, by Hezbollah, that Israel has now been given sort of the full political cover to continue with this strategy of genociding Palestinians. Now, mind you, in Lebanon, I don't think the word genocide is the proper term because you know, there, there were no sort of genocidal aims. There were just war crimes. Right. So yeah, it's, it's different. You know, I don't think it's a term one should use loosely, and I'm very careful with that. But in, Pal- in Palestine, it's definitely genocide, which is different. Yeah. Um, the difference that I'm trying to get at is that there's like a different kind of mode yeah. in of engagement. Yeah. Yes. In it's a sort of like um, totally like gloves are off, you know, this is who we are, and we're just going to sort of declare genocidal intent whenever we want. And and we don't even care about hiding it anymore. Like we have seen really quite a qualitative shift in discourse. You know, I think it was quite unexpected. And you know, the, the South African case now, like that there are pages and pages of these um, you know, declarations. So there clearly is a shift. And I think I don't think Hezbollah ever had any kind of reservations about would would Israel be ready or willing to do that? Because we saw, you know, with the Dahi doctrine, what Israel calls the Dahi doctrine which is a doctrine that it applied in the 2006 war against the Dahi, which is the southern suburbs of Beirut, uh, where the majority of the Shia community live. Uh, they, they targeted that area along with South Lebanon. And when I say they targeted it, I mean they just targeted civilian targets there. So it's a, a disproportionate use of force in civilian areas. And that's a very openly declared and articulated Israeli a strategy that they're very proud of, in fact. So this isn't like an analysis or anything. And they threaten Palestinians with this. So before the Gaza war, they were threatening Hamas and saying, we're going to use the Dahi doctrine in Gaza. And now what's interesting and, and absurd is they're now threatening Hezbollah to use the Gaza doctrine in Lebanon. So it's like, not only are we going to be committing war crimes, we're going to, we might be genocidal in Lebanon. You know? So right. it's just another kind of level of, of depravity we're talking about here and aggression. So there definitely is, I think, a fear that Israel is just sort of completely like unhinged, you know, mm-hmm. its leadership in terms of its aims. It's unfettered as well. It's unhinged and unfettered. Nobody is trying to restrain it. Um, and, th- you know, there is a sense that if it did la- launch a war on Lebanon, um, it would be actually even more destructive than in the past. For sure, I, I-, I do see that. However, Hezbollah is also, I think, very confident that it can inflict equal damage on Israel. And with any war, like even though this this would be an asymmetrical war, there is no doubt that Israel is militarily much more powerful than Hezbollah. And it's, you know, one of the strongest armies in the region, supposedly, in terms of, you know, military um, 
you know, weapons and, and sort of hard power indicators like weapons yeah. and so on. Yeah, not in terms of, uh, you know, actual uh, fighting or military prowess or anything like that, just in terms of weapons um, and US backing. It, it is, you know, a formidable force, uh, very sophisticated weapons and, and so on. But nonetheless, I think Hezbollah believes that in relative terms, it would, you know, it would prevent Israel from reoccupying Lebanon. It would be able to repel as it did in 2006, an invasion. And it would thwart all of Israel's aims. And you know, that's even without other groups joining the fray. And Nasrallah has threatened that in the next war, there, Hezbollah won't be alone, that there will be tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands, even, he said, of fighters from across the resistance axis who would, you know, want to defend Lebanon, yes. Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting you bring up the Dahi Doctrine because um, the, the Dahi Doctrine, this devastation, this in intentional and, and uh, large-scale devastation of civilian neighborhoods um, is is driven by the aim of uh, devastating the civilian population so much that they turn against the resistance. Yeah. Of course, uh, this has never worked. It has only empowered the resistance and increased the support of the resistance among the civilian population. And um, the architect of the Dahi Doctrine, Israel's uh, the Israeli army's uh, chief of general staff, Gadi Eisenkotz, son and nephew were both killed uh, during um, their participation in uh, the Israeli army's genocide on the Gaza Strip. Um, but kind of shifting gears, um, I'd like us to talk about um, Iran and the axis of uh, resistance briefly. Um, there is a clear emergence now um, of a unified ideological, mostly ideological, political and military um, confrontation of uh, Israel, but also in a much more cohesive understanding of uh, the confrontation of Israel is also a confrontation of US empire in the region. And I think that's a central understanding of uh, why Ansarullah, Hezbollah and Hamas uh, who, who who they're confronting really um, in the region? So I there's there's a lot on the um, in the Western left and the in the academic uh, Western left that try to draw some kind of equivalence um, between Iran and the Israeli occupation. Laughably, um, they make the claim sometimes that Iran uses Palestinians or the Palestinian question as pawns. Uh, I mean, not only is this a radical misunderstanding of empire and regional relations at best, I mean, uh, it's also a cynical endorsement of US empire. Um, either way, it produces the same result. Uh, first of all, can you explain to our viewers and listeners what the axis of resistance is? Uh, what the nature of Hezbollah's relations with Iran are, and what your take is on such uh, claims by the academic left? I think I think you know this is this view that Iran and the resistance axis have sort of been weaponizing the Palestinian cause, using Palestinians as as pawns and so on. Um, in a larger sort of strategic battle. First of all, that sort of view rests on the proxy theory, which 
which is a, a view of the different actors in the resistance axis, which is essentially a, a US view, a Western sort of policy view. Um, and it's and it's quite a disturbing one because it suggests that people in the region don't have legitimate grievances, first of all, that they don't have uh, agency as well, that these different actors don't have their own agency, their own objectives and strategies and so on. So, so it's it's a very problematic view to begin with. And it's, you know, the very term proxy is one that has been used now as a, a signifier for terrorist and which justifies, um, you know, US and, and other sort of Western attacks on the different groups that are called proxies. So it's 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 deeply problematic. And so this view that the resistance axis is, is, is instrumentalizing the Palestinian causes is quite a, a historical one, in fact. And it, it's a form of historical revisionism, if anything, because what history has shown us, and this can be you, you just very objectively, I'm saying here, you don't have to support Iran at all or Hezbollah's role in Syria and you know. You can even consider these Hezbollah and these other groups as terrorist groups. This has nothing to do with value judgments. This is an objective reading of history, is that Iran has been penalized repeatedly, you know, from the Islamic revolution onwards for its support of Palestine. And in fact, every U.S. administration has offered Iran, um, you know, different sort of carrots in exchange for giving up the Palestinian cause. And there was one leaked document, in fact, in 2003 called the Grand Bargain. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It was supposedly attributed to Iran. And I'm not sure about, you know, that I investigated this once and, and the Iranians didn't, they, they kind of said we had nothing to do with this. But nonetheless, it's important because it's that that view was dominant. In that document, Iran supposedly said, okay, you know what, we'll give up Hezbollah and Palestinian groups and will accept 1967 territories if you just back off and, and let us, you know, don't, don't bomb us sort of thing and allow us to survive as, a, as an Islamic system or, or regime or whatever. Um, and so, so that, that clearly reflects whether it's true or not, whether that actually did take place and was in fact authored by Jawad Zarif as was claimed at the time by the New York Times and others. Um, that the US was in fact pushing Iran to abandon the Palestinian cause and abandon its support for Palestinian groups. And in fact, in almost every kind of US discourse about Iran, we always hear about its support for terror, right? This is, this is a common refrain. So what does that mean? That means the US acknowledges that Iran supports these groups. You know, forget Hezbollah for a minute, that Iran supports and arms these groups. That's what Israel's been saying. And Israel has always threatened to bomb Iran because of this. Why is Iran considered the number one enemy of the US and Israel. It's because it arms and supports, you know, groups like Hamas, like Islamic Jihad, like Hezbollah that fight Israel. So to ignore that is is, is really, it's a bit absurd, honestly, because these are historical mm. facts. And the, the truth is that if Iran went back to the sort of the Iran of the Shah's era, where it was the US's policeman, uh, of the region where, you know, the the, the uh, Mossad was active in Iran at the time, where it served imperial interests, where it served, you know, Zionist interests, it was considered an ally of the US. So if Iran would just shift, I think, to being what a so-called moderate actor, which just sort of is neutral, let's say, and, and doesn't, I don't think that exists in international relations, but if it just sort of withdrew support from these groups, I'm sure it wouldn't be facing any more threats. So I think that's that's the most important thing to look at. And that's not to talk about even sort of Hezbollah's relations with Hamas and with even Fatah before them in terms of, you know, the historic relations, 
that go back decades in terms of training and equipping and, and so forth. The very fact that it's opened the front now, the very fact these different groups that are supported by Iran from Ansarullah in Yemen to the PMU in Iraq to Hezbollah in Lebanon, is that weaponizing the Palestinian cause? I don't understand how that could be still construed as anything but confirming that these resistance axis, whatever you think of it, even if you're a US policymaker, you would have to admit it is actively supporting and risking the security of these countries. Like Yemen is under risk now from US attack. Lebanon is under risk from Israeli US attack, but because it's sponsored by the US. Same with the Iraqis, they're, they're being assassinated. You know, the assassinations have started, not just uh, in Lebanon and in Palestine, but also in Iraq and in Syria. So we're talking here about, you know, a Hamas official was assassinated in Syria, I think last week. That's what I'm referring to. So we are talking here about a, a risk to these different actors when they have intervened to support the Palestinians. Uh, so th I think that's something that is extremely cynical for anyone to sort of ignore history and ignore objective reality and say, oh, they're just weaponizing the cause. What is the real relations then? Like what, uh, explain, explain, especially for our, think maybe our viewers who might not necessarily know, what is the resistance access and what are the real relations between uh, Iran and Hezbollah, let's say? Well, the resistance axis is, you know, an alliance, this term actually emerged around 2008. Um, and it was used more and more frequently by the actors themselves over the years. But it, it, it was, I, I would say, quite recently being used a lot more than in the past. Um, so in, 2000, in 2008, so we had after the July war, obviously Hezbollah and Iran have always been very sort of, you know, tight allies. And so has Hezbollah, Iran and um Palestinian groups, those relations were strengthened after the war in Syria, you know, Iran, Syria, Hezbollah. Now, obviously, Hamas, there was a falling out with Hamas in that period during the civil war in Syria, but then there was a rapprochement and, you know, ties have been restored with all the different actors. Um, so I, I think today we can talk about a resistance axis much more than we could back then. And back then, mind you, in the 2000s, Ansarullah wasn't part of the axis uh, and there weren't there was no Iraqi PMU until, you know, after 2014. So it's a term that this axis has grown in size. Initially, it was quite small and it expanded in size to incorporate these different actors, um, you know, from Lebanon to Yemen. So we're talking here about an axis. Many people used to like to call it a Shia crescent, actually, just to sort of look back, because although the Syrian, you know, the Syrian um, government is Alawite, it's considered Shia and even though the population in Syria is overwhelmingly Sunni, they still sort of counted Syria as a Shia actor and Iran and Hezbollah. So it was called the sort of Shia alliance um, and the, the elements that, you know, Hamas... Uh, and uh, Hamas, which is <laughs> a Sunni... Uh, well, Hamas is Sunni, exactly. And Ansarullah, they're not Shia, you know, they're, they're not actually properly Shia. They're, they're closer to... I mean, I know the Zaydi sect is considered a Shia sect, but they're closer to Sunni Islam, in fact. So... It depends how you define Shia, really. Um, but nonetheless, I think what's important is that they did try and sort of label it a Shia crescent to delegitimize it, to, to make it lose sort of popular support. Divide uh, which, and rule. Yeah, exactly. And that, that was quite successful, especially during the war in Syria, to be fair. Mm. Like 
Hezbollah and Iran lost a lot of support, according to opinion polls, uh, because of their intervention in Syria. But I think you know what we're seeing today has completely changed that. Uh, and, and in any way, we are in a, experiencing a period of desectarianization. So I think that's that's also been very helpful to this axis in terms of popular support. Uh, but to go back and look at the, the relations between them, so many people, as I said, you know, outside observers have called them sort of proxy relations that Iran leads this axis. In fact, they used to talk about Syria like that. They used to say that Hezbollah was a proxy of Syria's. And no, no one says that anymore because Syria has been weakened significantly in the strategic sense. And in fact, now it's, it's quite That's ironic. interesting, because, yeah. Because, because Hezbollah kind of played a role in saving Syria. So, and, and in fact, Hezbollah looks even more powerful for many, you know, by many metrics. I'm not saying that's true, but by many metrics, it does look even more powerful as a regional power, at least, than Syria is. And Syria was in a much stronger position in the past. So, um, you know, we're talking here about relations that are ideological, that are, have, you know, you've got historic ties, cultural ties. These are actors that share a strategic vision. They share an ideology. As I said, it doesn't have to be religious. Because even if we're talking about Shia actors, you know, the, the Assad regime is not uh, religious. It's, it's a secular regime, you know. It's not like Iran. Uh, and, you know, Ansarullah, completely different religious ideology. Same with Hamas. It's a different sect as well. So these different actors have different uh, religious ideologies, but they do share in common an anti-imperialist vision and an anti-Zionist one. And so I think the idea that they are just proxies of Iran is just ridiculous, in fact. Um, and that especially Hezbollah, you know, Hezbollah today, which has become a very influential regional power, and that, you know, Nasrallah himself is widely considered to be the coordinator between the different actors in the resistance axis, and there's a joint operations room between them that are coordinating, um, you know, the war with Israel today. And this was the case for Syria as well, mind you. So it, it started this joint operations room existed in Syria, it existed in Iraq, and today it exists uh, for Palestine. I'm not sure where the location is. Um, so so we, do, we do see this Hezbollah is sort of the main coordinator between these different groups and has sort of emerged as a regional, what I call regional subpower in its own right, because it's a non-state actor. So it's, it's not a full-blown regional power, but it's a regional subpower. Um, and so it's very very difficult to conceive of the relationship between Iran and these different actors, particularly Hezbollah, as one between a sponsor and a proxy. It enjoys a lot of autonomy. And I think the biggest problem is because there is so much convergence in terms of their strategic objectives, people tend to believe that, that those objectives wouldn't be held by these actors if it wasn't for Iran. That doesn't make any sense because none of these groups are acting against what they perceive as their own self-interest or their national interest. Now, other people might say, oh, that's that shouldn't be your interest, or that's not the national interest, but that's how they conceive their interests. So, you know, just because they're in alignment with one another, that doesn't mean Iran is calling the shots and telling them, oh, go fight, you know, go fight on this front, or Hamas, even more ridiculous were people who claimed that Hamas was acting on Iran's orders now. Like, can you imagine, after 75 years of you know Israel's um, Nakba, it's an ongoing Nakba against Palestinians that people would think that Hamas is taking orders from Iran and acting against its self-interest is absurd. No matter what you think of Hamas, like talking about your regular sort of U.S. policymaker, that's an absurd view to have because it's it's ahistorical. So what we're talking here is what we're talking about here is a long-standing history 
of shared you know, historical experiences and traumas even, collective trauma in the region. This is what these, these different actors share. So they're going to act in concert and they might have some minor differences here or there in terms of tactics and so on, but that's going to be the extent of it. Uh, so it's, it's, it's very oversimplistic, to put it mildly, to call them sort of proxies of Iran. Mm-hmm. It's part of the same effort. Um, excuse me. It's part of the same aim of also painting them as just akin to ISIS and, you know, these like uh, thoughtless, uh, no strategy, terrorist, Islamist groups. It's, it's all part of the same effort of just completely stripping them of any kind of political motivations, but clear political motivations. Um, or agency, of- like they don't have any agency. Right. You know, I think the U.S., I think, are now starting to realize it's not in their interest for Israel to be this unhinged settler colony. They'd right. like to be an imperial outpost, but not a settler colony to this extent. You know, it's a little bit of settler colonialism, but not too much kind of thing. So they do differ. Israel can only be useful to the United States if it's not a loose bull in a china shop. They need to have some kind of control. Otherwise, they're just a clear liability, a liability to internal domestic politics, a liability on the world stage as they cast the United States continuously as a pariah. Um, I completely agree with you that, you know, Israel without the United States would collapse in a week. It's We've seen a very uh, clear example of that through the resistance um, assault that they led on Israel's southern, you know, military um, uh, outposts. But it's, but it's, yeah. There's, there's, there's a fine line between being a useful outpost, a useful, um, uh, what did you call it? A, uh, a useful, out- yes, a useful strategic outpost. Yeah. Outpost and being just like an outright rogue Smotrich Ben Veer um, yeah. uh, bull in a china shop. I agree with that, and I think that um, that actually Israel and the U.S.'s interests. I, people people forget this, but Israel and the U.S. interests do clash sometimes. It does happen. I mean, you just have to look at the case of Jonathan Pollard, the yeah. Israeli spy who stole U.S. secrets for that, yeah. and there's. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot to be said about that, but we don't have the time to get into that. You would never find, like the other day, Israeli, I forgot which Israeli official, but even Netanyahu himself has sort of come, at, come out openly at odds with the US and mm. have, you know, you know, been furious at the way they're being treated by the Biden administration and said, you know, we, you know, we can do our own thing. You don't tell us what to do. Don't infantilize us. I've had many such statements coming out of Israel. And that is something you would never see among the different actors and the resistance axis because it's a completely different type of relationship, which is much more organic. It's not that it's more disciplined, it's more organic and natural, whereas mm. this is this is a different type of relationship, clearly. I mean, it's called the special relationship, but you know, only only because of certain um commonalities. Um it's it's not it's by no means organic or natural. Yeah, yeah and the US is largely fighting its own war. Um, in the region through Israel. So once Israel gets out of line, and I mean, what you're referring to, it was Smotrich who basically spelled out very clearly Israel's intentions of ethnically cleansing Palestinians from the Gaza Strip. And uh, 
Blinken and all the other psychopaths are saying, okay, well, you know, this is not really in line with um, our full intentions. So it's, it's, the break is not one of um, ideology, it's one, it's one of strategy. And uh, as long as Israel stays within the Yair Lapid uh, respectability politics, you know, wolf in sheep's clothing, I think the U.S. is would very much stay behind them. I mean, it's not like it's not like the Biden administration has like walked back in any meaningful way from a single Trump policy. That's oh, no. yeah, no, it's just it's. I think they're just embarrassed because. This isn't just a sort of a respectable right right wing. This is like a very sort of unhinged, marginal fringe right wing, exactly. um, or at least some of these. Not not all of them, but some of them, like Smotrich and others. So it, it's it's. It, I wouldn't say it's embarrassing to the US. They haven't embarrassed them at all, unfortunately. <laughs> but they just don't. Their their interests don't converge. I would say on many of these issues, like ethnic cleansing, like wanting to take over Gaza. Um, you know, things like that, that the U.S. wants a different type of ethnic cleansing, not the same kind of type. So it's, it's um, yeah, that there are definitely strategic differences, I think, even there. But um, well, uh, Amal Saad, thank you very much for joining us today on the Electronic Intifada. It's been a brilliant discussion and we really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks for watching this video. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel hit like, leave a comment. These engagements help us with the YouTube algorithm and it helps us to get around Silicon Valley censorship as much as possible. It does make a difference. You can also support our journalism by going to electronicintifada.net and clicking on donate now. Thank you.